My grandmother, Vi Vanderpool, was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in her 40s. Most of my childhood, my memories of Grandma Vi are either using a walker, just like you see on TV, and then also in a wheelchair. She couldn't open up jars, so anytime I remember as a teenager going over to her house, if she had just gotten groceries, she would want you to loosen all of the jars of everything that she had. Uh, And at one point, uh, this is before keys changed, they actually welded a large uh, half of a plier to a key so that she could turn the ignition on the car because she couldn't actually physically turn the ignition. My grandfather spent most of his adult life caring for my grandma. And, and he died in 1980, and she lived another 20 years on her own. And the, the funny thing is, if you ever sat down with her, she was cheerful. She was positive. She was actually a very encouraging person to be around. And yet, she had this significant limitation in life. I also have a friend who had uh, lupus. She was diagnosed with lupus. And she developed stomach problems. She had a lot of fatigue. She had pain. Um, And her husband changed his job. Uh, He used to have to travel a lot, and he actually got a different job so that he could actually care for her and really step in and step up his game at home and, and has helped her out a lot. But if you were to sit down with my friend these days, you wouldn't really want to be around her because she's actually kind of bitter. Uh, she's pretty angry, and, and uh, poisonous is a word that some people use to describe her now. And it's kind of really sad the way it's played out, how bitter she has become. Isn't it interesting? Two women, two women, both have a health issue. One is cheerful, encouraging, you know, positive, and the other is nothing but toxic. Isn't it weird how that works out? Isn't it weird how pain and suffering, how a hardship or an adversity can turn some people into amazing human beings and other people into, you know, hey, could you not hang around me? You know, difficult to be with. Why is it that some people are that way? Why is it that some people become incredible and other people become bitter? Why is it that some people flourish and other people flounder? Why is that? People will often point to the adversity that was in Abraham Lincoln's childhood and early adulthood and say it was all that adversity and suffering that made him a great president. But don't you know people in your own life who've had some adversity and all they do is, I'll keep it quiet. Clearly, clearly pain and suffering does not automatically produce good stuff in people. Pain and suffering doesn't always lead to you becoming or someone else becoming an incredible human being. I want to suggest to you today something that you may not have considered. I want to suggest to you today that because God is your heavenly father and because God loves you, it matters more to him the kind of person that you are and the kind of person you become rather than what you have or what you achieve. This is a hard thing for a lot of Americans to get, but I want to suggest to you that God cares more about who you are and who you become than what you have, how healthy you are, and and what you achieve in life. Sometimes, sometimes God will use pain and suffering and tragedy and adversity as an opportunity to develop you as a person, to make you more like him. See, here's the problem. As soon as a miscarriage comes along, as soon as you lose your job, as soon as... 
you know, the, the debts to the point where you're panicking every time the end of the month comes around, you know, the first thing you're thinking is, where's God? Where did God go? See, in all of those things, the assumption is God's absent. If I have these bad things in life, that must mean that God has up and left me. I'm on my own. What if it's the case that the presence of adversity in your life does not necessarily mean God is absent? What if God is actually more present in your circumstances when you have adversity? And in order to show you how true this is, I want you to hear from somebody today, and I want you to look at the life of Joseph. Joseph, if I were to make a movie of the Bible, this is the person I would pick. This is the storyline I would use. Joseph, not Moses, not, you know, Abraham, not any of these other guys, Joseph. And his story is found in chapters 37 of Genesis all the way to chapters, really all the way to the end of the book. Okay, and we're going to be moving along at a good clip, and they'll put the scriptures up on, uh, on the big screen. But let me, let's get going. So chapter 37, verses 1 and 2, and if they'll put that up. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, Joseph was the baby of the family, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Notice the first thing about Joseph. He's a tattletale. He's a snitch. Oh, daddy, daddy, guess what? Guess what? Guess what Judah and Reuben are doing? I saw them. You need to punish them, dad. I'm your favorite. Verse 3. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. Many scholars will say that the robe here isn't the kind that you see in Joseph in the amazing color technicoats, but it actually refers to a long-sleeved robe, which meant that Joseph was management, not labor. I know promoted at the ripe old age of 17 to be in charge over all his older brothers, all his older brothers. And you know, they took that really well. As all older siblings do when younger siblings are favored by mom and dad. Verse 5 and following. One night Joseph had a dream and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We're out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. No snarky. This is a vision from the Lord God. He is going to have a way of prosperity. His territory is going to be expanded, expanded. It's going to be awesome. And, of course, his brothers take that well, too. Here's another thing, right? Uh, Joseph just says everything that comes into his head, everything that comes along his way. Uh, Let's read what happens to poor Joseph here, verse 26 to 28. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? His blood would give us a guilty conscience. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to these Ishmaelite traders. 
After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midian Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him for 20 pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt. So his brothers, acting out of hatred and envy, they want to kill him, and they decide, instead of killing him, let's just sell him as a slave. Can we stop for a minute? Let me see how you're following along. What are some character traits that you would label Joseph with at this point in his life? What are some things that have come up already just from these first few verses of chapter 37? What are some things you've noticed about him? What? Arrogant. Arrogant. Big mouth. Yep, big mouth. He's a tattletale. Um, he has this vision, right, that his thing is everybody's going to bow to it. Just because something comes into your head doesn't mean you should always say it. This is a hard thing for many of us to learn in life, right? If, if, someone, if someone says to you, man, your wife is fat, you shouldn't necessarily pass that on to her. Right? Okay, so there's some wisdom about a filter and not always saying everything that comes your way, everything that you think of. So there are a number of things about Joseph that we could call growing edges in his life, right? I mean, he's, there's a lot going on here. He's not somebody probably that you would really want to have as a friend. So he's sold into slavery, and 10 verses later, he's sold again. And he sold to this man who's named Potiphar. And Potiphar happened to be the captain of the guard for the Pharaoh of Egypt. And let's pick it up, verse, chapter 39, verse 2. This is what the Bible says. The Lord was with Joseph. I'll let them get that up here. The Lord was with Joseph, chapter 39, verse 2. Why is that in the Bible? Why is that in the Bible? Because when you're sold into slavery twice, you were the favored son, you were going to be in charge of everything, dad was going to give you the, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, your brother sell you into slavery, then you're sold again into Egypt, all of us would, based on circumstances, conclude, well, poor guy, he's having a round of bad, bad luck. And right in here, the, 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 God wants us to know, and the, the writer of Genesis wants us to know, the Lord was with Joseph. Let's keep going, and let's look at verses 10 to 12. He uh, is managing things for Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife decides in verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, Come, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Here's an indicator that Joseph is starting to change. The brash tattletale who's got the world by his tail. Here's an opportunity. Here's a woman who wants you. And... And here we see, for whatever reason, his integrity is more important. He passes on this opportunity. He flees her presence. And he's starting to change. And we see 
this borne out in his punishment, verses 19 and following. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. And there's that word of a phrase again. But the Lord was with Joseph. Um, Potiphar, if Potiphar had believed his wife, given how people rolled in Egypt at this time in history, Joseph wouldn't have lived. He would have been executed on the spot. The reality that's probably playing out in this passage is that Potiphar knows his wife lacks integrity. His wife says things she shouldn't say, does things she shouldn't do, and so he throws Joseph in prison. He's now been cost his best slave, the guy he put in charge of everything. Thanks a lot, honey. Right? Because I got a safe face. I got to do this stuff. But I know the story's kind of... So he's thrown in prison. And in chapter 41, verse 1, we see the phrase. And if he'll put 41.1 there. What does this say here, gang? To... Let me ask you a question. You've been sold into slavery twice. You're falsely accused of something that you weren't even trying to do. Now you're thrown into prison. How you doing? <laughs> How are things? What are your Facebook posts like? <laughs> oh, that good, huh? <laughs> okay, right? Let's, uh, verse 41, verses, uh, chapter 41, verses 37 and following. Or actually, yeah, 41... Uh, verses 37 you may kill so let's let's fast forward let's fast forward um joseph is in prison two years he uh meets some people uh they get released he doesn't uh they go to work for pharaoh pharaoh has a dream and he can't interpret it and the guys remember you know what there was this guy in prison they had forgotten about him there's this guy in prison. His name's Joseph. He's this Jew, Hebrew. Go, go get him. He can tell you what the dream means. So, so Joseph shows up. He's able to interpret the dream. He shows wisdom. Here's what he, he makes a proposal to what Pharaoh should do. And Pharaoh's like, man, this guy's got a clear sense of what we need to do. This guy. And so Pharaoh makes him in charge of everyone else in all of Egypt big change of fortune in just a short time so as the second in command of all of egypt joseph joseph's brothers come into egypt two different times the first time they come and they show up they're there to buy food because joseph has stored food on behalf of egypt joseph orders his servants to put their money back in their saddlebags as they're leaving and they're freaked out by this they're freaked out by this. And you get an indicator of it in chapter 42, verse 21. Chapter 42, verse 21. This is what they say to themselves. Speaking amongst themselves, they said, Clearly, we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in trouble. So here are these brothers that were just full of envy and hatred for their brother at now they're at a point where at least they consider that what they had done was wrong they've offended god 
and they see the actions of their money appearing back in their sacks as an indicator that God's going to punish them. All right? So they go back to Egypt a second time, and the second time Joseph instructs uh, his uh, servants to put his personal cup in the sack of Benjamin, the other favored kid of his father Jacob. And they do that, and of course the cup is found. And now the stakes are really high because he wants to keep Benjamin. But look at what uh, Judah says, and it's in chapter 44, verses 30 through, uh, let's say, 34. So chapter 44, verses 30 and following. Judah says this to Joseph, not knowing it's his brother. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving, white-haired man to the grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, please let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return to my father. How can I return to my father if the boy is, would, is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. The man who says this is Judah, who agreed to throw his father's favorite son in a pit and was going to kill him, and then sold that young man into slavery. That man is now saying, I cannot bear to see the anguish that the loss of this other son would cause my father. Take me instead. I'll stay. I'll endure the punishment. I'll be your slave. Let my brother go. Judah's changed, isn't he? He's a different man. He's not the same man he was in chapter 37. Joseph's not the same man either. There's an incredible transformation that takes place, not just with Joseph, but with all of his brothers. They're changed as a result of a lot of hard things. We see that in Joseph. Uh, In chapter 45, verses 1 and 2, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was, and he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. The kicker is just a few verses later. Joseph says this to his brother, verse 5 and following. Don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. Get this. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more, and there'll be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he's the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. God was at work all along. All along, God was at work. And in fact, God was with Joseph, even though you and I reading the story might conclude, oh my goodness, where's God? He's in prison. Where's God? He's falsely accused. Where's God? God was not only with Joseph, God was at work in Joseph's life and in the life of his family. We know this for, for sure because if you go all the way back to chapter 37, Genesis 37, 
there's a unique set of circumstances. This is chapter 37, verses 14 uh, through 17. Jacob tells Joseph, Go and see your brothers in the flocks and how the flocks are getting along. Then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent Joseph on his way, and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. When he arrived there, verse 15, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for? He said. Verse 16, I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yep, they've moved on from here. But I heard him say, let's go on to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and found them there. And there they throw him in the pit and sell him into slavery. Let me ask you a question. He goes to where his father instructs him. He's lost. He doesn't know where his brothers are. And there's this random guy who not only saw him but knows where they went. What a weird coincidence is that. Some people would say, well, that's just bad luck. But the writer of Genesis is wanting you to see that God was working all along, all the way from the beginning. So let me ask a question of you. How long are you willing to wait? How long are you willing to wait? My experience is that most of us Americans, we can wait for a few months, and then anything becomes too hard. It's a marriage, it's a job. I mean, just pick a category, and after a few months, we're done. We're at at our wit's end. We just can't do it anymore. What I found to be the case in life and with God is that God often works in decades. Hate that about him, don't you? (laughs) He often works in decades. But I want you to see this morning God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy because God saw our brokenness and entered our world and became himself broken. He died on a cross so that he could make all things new. In this account of Joseph and his brothers, all of the relationships are restored. What is broken down by envy and hatred is restored with love and forgiveness. What was a position of authority that is taken all the way down to nothing but slave, he becomes like Pharaoh himself. God has this tendency to take what is broken and make it whole. And he can do that in your life. And so it's a really simple bottom line today. When there is no evidence of God's presence, you can either walk out or you can lean in. And I'm going to encourage you to lean in and not walk out on God. Because even though you may not feel like it, God is actually with you and he is at work. And in order for you to really know that, I want you to hear from somebody this morning. And so, Danita, will you come up here? Mike and Danita have been part of this church family forever and a day. And like many of you in this room, Danita has had bumps in life and things that you would say are not necessarily positive. Yeah. By the time you're my age, you've been around the block a few times. And so um, I had have had several things that I could share this morning. I prayed about it. And uh, I'm, what I'm going to share with you is the biggest sorrow in my life. It's the worst pain I ever had. And so some of you already know this story. And uh, thank you for your patience. Some of you have experienced similar things. And so 
I know this is going to touch a chord with you, um, but we'll get through it. When Mike and I got married, I had always pictured myself with a house full of kids, like four or five big teenage boys running around, lots of noise. And, um, and he and I were married a year, and nothing happened. We were married a couple years, and, and I wasn't pregnant. We married three years. And I was starting to say once in a while something like, um, I don't know, should we go to a doctor or talk about this or, or, or do some kind of test or something? But I, I, I wasn't ready for that. I didn't want to do that. I wanted God to just give us a baby. And so four years, nothing happened. <laughs> and um, we were married five years, and all of a sudden, like magic, out of nowhere, I was pregnant. And I didn't even know it. I was uh, 11 weeks pregnant before I figured out something was going on because <laughs> I had been so long, you know, not, not, not realizing. So I was pregnant. I was thrilled. I was excited. And Mike was shocked, and then he got excited. <sighs> Thank you. And um, we were in a, a little bitty church, and they were having one of those dry spells you sometimes get where there aren't any babies. And so they were all excited. We were relatively newcomers to the church, and it was our first baby, and they knew our history. And, and so it was like our whole little community was like we were all like waiting for this wonderful miracle baby after you know, all these years. And uh, I, was, I felt great. It was wonderful pregnancy. It was awesome. So uh, things went their normal course, and I went to labor, and we went to the hospital. And, and then something happened. Something went wrong. And the way I remember it... I remember that they threw me on this gurney all of a sudden, just like I know where people came running in and threw me on this thing and went dashing down the hall, and we went flying through these open doors. <laughs> and, uh, and the surgeon was saying, okay, I'm going to make a cut. And I remember saying, wait, I'm still... And then, uh, so I woke up, and uh, yeah, our son Matthew had, had died. And they resuscitated him. And then a few hours later, he died again. And so... As, as, as many of you might have experienced, or, you know, as, 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 you've, as these things happened, we were crushed. We were broken. We were devastated. We were caught off guard and, and, and surprised that, that God had taken us through all these steps. And then at the last minute, nothing. And I didn't know if I'd ever get pregnant again. I didn't know why I got pregnant that one time. But in the midst of all this, what I was not was I was not confused about the nature of God. I believed in the goodness of God. I believed in God's love and kindness towards me and Mike, even at that moment where I couldn't really see it, even if it was dark. I believed in the goodness of God. And um, I, I would cry all the time, and Mike would say, Danini, you, you've got to pray. And I said, I am praying. This is me praying. And, you know, but... Um, but because, I think, because I was open to God, I think, I was able to experience some things that I might not have otherwise. Um, well, for starters, I'm not as presumptuous about God. I don't, I'm not so quick to assume that I know what God wants or what he's going to do or what might or might not happen. And, of course, we still believe in God stepping in. We still believe in healing, things like we've seen it, you know, at other times. There are other stories that, that we could share. But I don't assume right away, even when I'm praying for someone, I, I, I tend to say, okay, Lord, what do you, how do you want me to pray in this situation? So I learned that. But more than that, the bigger thing what I 
what I experienced was the comfort of God. In that time, when I was as shocked and broken as, you know, as a, as a mom can be, I felt the comfort of God. This little church that Mike and I were in, if, if you walked into it, you might walk out thinking, man, that is one dysfunctional group of people. <laughs> but in that time, when we really needed them the most, they were there for us. They were God's hands and feet for us. They, I felt like they swarmed in over us and just covered us with love. Um, that mattered to me. That really comforted me. I felt that comfort. I think if we had been angry and bitter, we probably wouldn't have been able to feel it. Um, but I, I felt that comfort. People came up to me at the funeral, and they said, uh, I prayed about it, and, and you know, God's talked to me, and, and you will have another son. And, uh, and it'll be in nine months, but, but it'll be okay. And, and sure enough, nine months later, I was pregnant again. I mean, I don't think that's what Fernando was thinking of. He was thinking of a nine-month pregnancy is a long time to wait, but, but nine months later, I was pregnant again. But more than that, too, when Mike was praying... Um, was it before the funeral? No. Was it after? Okay. So Mike was praying. And God spoke to him and said, you will have a son. And, and his name is David Thomas. So even in the midst of that darkness, God allowed it to happen. He, he chose to not step in and save the day. But he didn't leave us alone. He gave us the comfort of the people around us. He gave us the comfort of his promise. And that helped to get us through that, that time. And the experience also changed me in a couple of ways. Um, and, and I'm glad that I was changed. I, I, I am, I'm glad for what happened to me as a result of that. For starters, I was able to be more compassionate. People who have not been through a lot of hurt, I, I don't know, at least with my case... I don't think that I was that compassionate, but after you've been through some really breaking experiences, you really feel for other people a lot more. And so I think I'm able to connect to other people a, a lot more than, than before any of this happened. And I also saw when my sister flew out to Alaska for the funeral, um, she saw our little church experience. And so it changed something in her, and she said, she said to me, I, 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 wanna, I want that kind of thing for my family, too. She hadn't been in a church in maybe a decade. And so she went back to Georgia and, and um, found a church that she could start taking her kids to and stuff. So that, that had a, a profound effect on her life. And the other thing is, in, in a way that I don't entirely understand, it, the experience left me um, a little bit braver, a little bit freer, because I recognized in a real way, it really heart deep way that our lives hang by a thread I mean we you say that we always say that but I'm just like I really understood it after that experience after after Matthew died and I know that every breath I take that doesn't end in a heart attack or a stroke or being mowed down by a bus that's all the grace of God so two years later when we were crossing into Mexico with our one-year-old baby which caused an uproar in several parts of my family I remember a, a border guard, an American border guard, he looked at me and he looked at my little boy and he said, you know, they still little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boys like that in Mexico. And I said, they still blonde-haired, blue-eyed boys like that everywhere. Our lives are in the hands of God. 
because I understood that. I don't know how I would have felt if I hadn't already experienced that great loss, but I really understood then that, you know, God protects us, or he doesn't, it's his choice, and if he does protect us, we're good to go anywhere. We don't have to worry about anything, and if he's not going to protect us, we're kind of hosed anyway, <laughs> you know, so, so I, it, it was 26 years ago, Matthew would have turned 26 just a few days ago, in fact, and it still hurts, uh, it still is a, it's a very emotional thing for me to talk about. And I, and I thought, well, that happened so long ago, maybe people don't want to know. But it was one of the most important events in my life. So I wanted to share that with you. Positions to make their way. I want to... So if you could say to people at Generations Community Church, Danilo Sage, would you say that in the midst of an adversity, in the midst of pain and suffering, is it better to lean into God or walk away from God? Lean in, okay? Lean in. We're going to sing a song together. If you want some folks to pray with you, you can come sit on the front row. Happy to do that. Uh, But I invite you to stand right now.